This play is not a Roman play. There's no heroism here, as in Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. This play is really unique in Shakespeare's output because it's a satire. It's nothing but satire, and it's an especially mordant, even abusive, certainly aggressive form of satire. This is not a play that people love. I don't think I've ever come across anyone who loves Troilus and Cressida, and I don't either. No, it's a play that is not meant to be loved. It's a play that vents spleen. Troilus and Cressida wants to poison the well of Homeric narrative and the entire Trojan tradition, just as Homer arrives in England and in English. So not only with regard to Homer, but also with regard to Virgil, with regard to Chaucer, Shakespeare wants to trash the Troy tradition. This play could be called Shakespeare's Sack of Troy. My name is James Simpson. I'm the Donald P and Catherine B. Loker, Professor of English at Harvard University. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor Simpson about Troilus and Cressida. Written around 1601, this play retells one of the oldest stories of Western civilization, the story of the Trojan War. Recounted by the Greek poet Homer in his epic The Iliad around the 8th century BCE, then by the classical Roman poet Virgil in the Aeneid, the story of Troy was retold and rewritten throughout the Middle Ages and was well known to Shakespeare's Renaissance-era audience. Homer's version focused on the military conduct of the war, The medieval poet Chaucer, in his Troilus and Cressida, focused on the doomed love affair between two Trojans. Shakespeare combines these two stories, but produces from this familiar material something quite different. Homer's famous protagonists, Achilles, Agamemnon and Ulysses are here, leading the Greeks in war against Troy, after the Trojan prince Paris's abduction of the Greek queen Helen. Troilus and Cressida are here too, tragically separated as soon as they have begun their love affair, when Cressida is traded away to the Greeks. But these characters bear little resemblance to their earlier, nobler counterparts. Shakespeare's play takes the vast and culturally significant Troy tradition and collapses it into a cynical, demystifying satire, One that is equally disillusioned about military glory, romance, and the literary tradition itself. I think it's that Shakespeare is not only representing the conduct of war, but Shakespeare is waging war. War, in my experience, war produces a particular kind of aggression, and I'm thinking not only obviously of the wars themselves, but responses to the wars. Societies divide virulently around wars, and I think that's because wars tend to be zero-sum 
games. You're a winner or you're a loser. And that is true of the entire discursive environment around wars, including the literary environment. So Shakespeare addresses multiple traditions about war and Shakespeare is hostile to them all. He conducts a take-no-prisoners, zero-sum game against all these Trojan literary traditions. He is waging war, waging literary war, against the entire tradition of Troy. Troilus and Cressida opens in some versions with a prologue. An actor comes on stage in armour to announce, In Troy there lies the scene. The Greek princes have come to ransack Troy, within whose strong walls the ravished Helen, Menelaus's queen, with wanton Paris sleeps. And that's the quarrel. The play will treat the well-known story of the Trojan War. The Trojan War dominates late medieval and early modern European imagining. Trojan materials are really vast. So in some five available traditions, this is a big cultural matrix. Homer, Virgil, Guido, Boccaccio, and then late 14th, 15th century English, Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, Lydgate's Troy book, Henryson's Testament of Crescent. We obviously want to ask now which of those traditions were available to Shakespeare and his audience. All of them. All of them. The prologue says they come armed in like conditions as our argument. But the first scene shows a soldier disarming. The Trojan prince Troilus declares, I'll unarm again. Why should I war without the walls of Troy that find such cruel battle here within? He's less concerned with war than with his frustrated love for Cressida. In the 1380s, the English poet Chaucer wrote his own version of Troilus and Cressida, which also focused chiefly on love amidst the Trojan War. Anyone who knows Troilus and Crusade has fallen in love with the poem. This is a great work of art, which is uh, profoundly moving, persuasive, daring. Chaucer and Troilus and Crusade makes extraordinary claims for the idealism of human love. But on the other hand, Chaucer's poem takes us into ethical no-man's land because Chaucer's poem is very conscious of the fact that the pressures of war can't be resisted forever. They're going to invade and they produce terrible ethical challenges. Troilus pours out his frustrations to Pandarus, Cressida's uncle, who has been acting as a go-between between Troilus and his niece. We meet Cressida when Pandarus goes again to try and woo her on Troilus's behalf. As the Trojan warriors return from battle, Pandarus describes them to her, praising Troilus loudest of all. Cressida teasingly puts down all his praise. 
But when Pandarus exits, we learn why. Alone on stage, she confesses that she loves Troilus, but fears that if she gave herself to him, he would lose interest in her. Men prize the thing ungained more than it is, she affirms. Things won are done. To keep Troilus's love strong, she hides her own. The Greek officers sit in council discussing why they haven't yet defeated Troy. Ulysses, known to many readers as Odysseus from Homer's Odyssey, says the problem is that the Greek soldiers no longer respect the chain of command, or, as he puts it, they no longer observe degree. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this centre observe degree, priority, and place. Take but degree away and hark what discord follows, he says. When one soldier disrespects his superior, every soldier follows suit, and the army's effectiveness dissolves. For the Greeks, the problem started with Achilles. Achilles is their greatest warrior, but his fame has made him so proud that he now disdains the other officers. Instead of fighting, he spends all day in his tent with his companion Patroclus, who entertains him with mocking imitations of the Greek leaders. Their council is interrupted by the Trojan Aeneas, who has a message from the great Trojan soldier Hector. Hector has issued a challenge to the Greeks. He will fight in single combat with any man they choose. Ulysses spies a way of curbing Achilles' pride. Hector likely assumed that Achilles would answer his challenge, but Ulysses says they should send another soldier, Ajax, to fight Hector instead. If Ajax wins, his honours will deflate Achilles' overinflated pride. Our project's life this shape of sense assumes Ajax employed plucks down Achilles' plumes. We first encounter Ajax beating his satirical, sharp-tongued servant, Thersites. Thou hast no more brain than I have in mine elbows, thou scurvy, valiant ass, Thersites howls in rebuke to Ajax's blows. Thersites is just as rude to Achilles and Patroclus. When Patroclus tells him to be quiet, he says, I will hold my peace when Achilles' brack bids me. Brack, meaning a female dog or a prostitute. The play suggests a homoerotic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. We have homosexual and homosocial love explicitly represented, or all but explicitly represented, and it's represented in ways which unusually, for Shakespeare, are fundamentally unsympathetic. Why? Because they're part of a matrix of the ethos of love being wholly to do with militarist, rivalrous, honour-determined, zero-sum-game ethos of amatory relationships. In the next scene, we see how love plays out as a rivalrous military strategy among men. The Trojans are also in council, debating whether to end the war by giving Helen back to the Greeks. Hector argues that they have already lost too many Trojan lives defending her. But for his brothers Troilus and Paris, the question of whether to keep Helen comes down to male honour. 
If they return her now that the Greeks have demanded her, they will look like dishonourable cowards and thieves. On the other hand, if they fight for Helen, the abduction and the war will seem noble. The quarrel, Troilus says, hath our several honours all engaged to make it gracious. He calls Helen a theme of honour and renown, a spur to valiant and magnanimous deeds whose present courage may beat down our foes and fame in time to come canonise us. Helen represents an opportunity for the Trojans to show their greatness over their rivals. The council is interrupted by King Priam's daughter, Cassandra. According to myth, Cassandra had the gift of prophecy, but was fated never to have her prophecies believed. Cry, Trojans, cry, she says. A Helen and a woe, cry, cry. Troy burns, or else let Helen go. Troilus dismisses her as mad. And Hector, surprisingly, also votes not to let Helen go. Hector argued wisely for returning Helen, ending the war and stopping the loss of life. But in the end, his decision also comes down to military status. "'Tis a cause that hath no mean dependence upon our joint and several dignities." This depiction of honour-driven decision-making was inspired by one of the key Troy traditions from the Middle Ages, that of the medieval Italian writer Guido delle Colonne. The Guido tradition is by far the dominant presence in the presentation of the Trojan War for the later medieval period and the early modern period. Key events in the Guido tradition do not happen on the battlefield. They happen in council sessions. Both the Greeks and the Trojans have lots of council sessions. We see these in Shakespeare. That's where he gets them from. And in each council session, the committee is run badly. They vote for the stupid option. They get it wrong. What we see is young, swaggering militarists promoting the continuation of dumb wars. On the Greek side, Thucydides curses the war that he, at least, sees as dumb. All the argument is a whore and a cuckold, a good quarrel to bleed to death upon. War and lechery confound all. Cressida has agreed to begin a love affair with Troilus, though we don't hear from her as to why she has decided this now. Pandarus brings them together and Cressida admits to Troilus, I have loved you night and day for many weary months. Troilus vows he will be faithful to her, saying future lovers will promise to be as true as Troilus. Cressida says that if she ever betrays Troilus, she wishes that all unfaithful women may be called as false as Cressid. Pandarus chimes in to say that if they prove false, all pitiful goers between, like him, should be called panders. These wishes sound an ominous note for what's to come. No sooner have the lovers' vows been made than they are tested. 
In the Greek camp is Cressida's father, Calchas, who abandoned Troy to serve the Greeks. Calchas asks the Greeks to exchange a Trojan captive for Cressida. They agree and send their soldier Diomedes to fetch Cressida out of Troy. Ulysses continues trying to provoke Achilles back into action. He directs the Greeks to show scorn to the great warrior. Achilles is bewildered. What, are my deeds forgot? he asks. Ulysses describes to him the fragility of fame. Time hath, my lord, a wallet at his back wherein he puts alms for oblivion. Those scraps are good deeds past, which are forgot as soon as done. The only way to maintain one's reputation is to keep doing valiant deeds. Achilles protests that he has good reason not to fight in the war. He is secretly pledged to the Trojan princess Polyxena. Ulysses replies, Better would it fit Achilles much to throw down Hector than Polyxena. Troilus and Cressida wake after their night together to learn Cressida must be sent away. Cressida says she will not go join her father. Oh, you immortal gods, I know no kin, no love, no blood, no soul so near me as the sweet Troilus. Be thou true, Troilus urges, and Cressida promises she will be. He says he will visit her and they exchange love tokens. Diomedes arrives and praises Cressida's beauty. Troilus's love now manifests in rivalrous jealousy. I charge thee, use her well, he tells Diomedes, for by the dreadful Pluto, if thou dost not, I'll cut thy throat. After his own rival sparring with Troilus, Diomedes departs with Cressida. When they arrive in the Greek camp, all the officers move in to kiss Cressida in a scene that can be playful, menacing, or even carry a suggestion of rape, depending on how it is performed. But by the end of the scene, Cressida is parrying the men back. She mocks Menelaus, and when Ulysses says, May I, sweet lady, beg a kiss of you? I do desire it. She replies, Why, beg too. Fie upon her, says Ulysses. Her wanton spirits look out at every joint of her body. Some critics and directors support Ulysses' view of Cressida as wanton or sluttish, but not all. The Trojans arrive for Hector's combat with Ajax. Hector will not carry the fight to the death because Ajax is his cousin and they conclude the fight by embracing. Hector and the Greeks greet each other with respect, though Achilles shows arrogant pride towards his rival. Tell me, you heavens, he says, in which part of his body shall I destroy him, whether there or there? Hector replies coldly, I'll kill thee everywhere. Tomorrow do I meet thee fell as death, tonight all friends, says Achilles. The Trojans and the Greeks feast together. This play is striking for the fact that the Greeks and the Trojans are always in the same room. They're always chatting with each other, you know, and they're always being rude to each other. And then we have Ulysses and 
and Freud is together watching Diomede and Cressida. They're always together in the most indecent, improper, prurient, voyeuristic way, which is characteristic of simplistic, idiotic, honour-bound ethos. Troilus asks Ulysses to bring him to Cressida's father's tent, where they listen in as Diomedes speaks to Cressida. Cressida has promised him something, apparently a sexual encounter, but doesn't want to keep her promise. She goes back and forth, changing her mind, but when Diomedes threatens to abandon her for good, she relents and tells him to come to her at night. I come, oh Jove, I shall be plagued. Diomedes departs and Cressida speaks a soliloquy marked by uncertainty and self-recrimination. Troilus, farewell, one eye yet looks on thee, but with my heart the other eye doth see. Oh, poor our sex, this fault in us I find. The error of our eye directs our mind, what error leads must err. Oh, then conclude, minds swayed by eyes are full of turpitude. Thocytes, eavesdropping, passes judgment on her as Ulysses did. A proof of strength she could not publish more unless she said, My mind is now turned whore. Troilus cannot believe what he has seen. Was Cressid here? he asks. This is and is not Cressid. Cressid is mine, tied with the bonds of heaven. The bonds of heaven are slipped, dissolved and loosed. He vows to kill Diomedes in battle. Thocytes comments, Lechery, lechery, still wars and lechery. Nothing else holds fashion. In no other play is the authorial perspective so closely aligned with the perspective of a single character as Troilus and Cressida is aligned with Thersites. Thersites is the only figure with lots of soliloquies at the end of about six scenes we're left with Thersites and he uses those soliloquies to comment on what we've just seen to give the audience a direction and it's a very critical modern direction. Troilus and Hector arm for battle. Cassandra and Hector's wife Andromache beg Hector not to go. They have seen omens of his death. But Hector insists on fighting. The dear man holds honour far more precious dear than life. Troilus is bristling to start attacking the Greeks. Pandarus brings him a letter from Cressida, but he tears it up and departs for the fight. He and Diomedes cross the battlefield in fierce combat. The Trojans beat back the Greeks, and soldiers enter with the dead body of Patroclus. Love for Patroclus overwhelms Achilles' love for the Trojan princess, and he enters the battle crying, Where's Hector? Hector and Achilles meet, and Hector gains the advantage, but he prizes honourable fair play and holds back to let Achilles recover. A little later, Hector kills a Greek soldier to claim his handsome suit of armour. 
he sets down his sword and starts to disarm. At that moment, he is surrounded by Achilles and his followers, the Myrmidons. I am unarmed, forgo this vantage, Greek, says Hector. But Achilles orders his soldiers to strike and they kill Hector. Hector is murdered. And this comes straight from the Guido tradition. Guido's Achilles is a rotter. He's an ignoble bully who just cares about winning. He's not interested at all in military ethics. And he catches uh, Hector in a moment where he's unprotected and his myrmidons murder him. Agamemnon declares, If in Hector's death the gods have us befriended, great Troy is ours and our sharp wars are ended. But audiences who knew the Troy story would have known that this was not the end of the war, and it's hardly a conclusive ending for Shakespeare's play. Troilus re-enters without having defeated Diomedes and bitterly tells the other Trojans, March away, Hector is dead, there is no more to say. Pandarus tries to speak with him, but Troilus dismisses him brutally. Ignomy and shame, pursue thy life and live I with thy name. The last words of Shakespeare's histories and tragedies often come from great political figures. In this play, however, they come from the ignoble Pandarus. He hints that he will soon die of a sexually transmitted disease and says to the audience, rather shockingly, that he will pass it to them. Till then I'll sweat and seek about for eases and at that time bequeath you my diseases. He speaks as a panda working in the sex trade. He's suffering himself from a venereal disease and he wants to spread the disease amongst his fellow traders, some of whom may be in the audience that he's addressing. I can hardly bring myself to read it. At that time, I'll bequeath you my diseases. Oh dear. That's how this play ends. It's a curse. A curse of a terrible kind on its audience. It's a toxic, toxic play that promises to spread its toxicity. In our next episode, we'll discuss how Shakespeare presents a diseased or poisoned version of the Troy myth, and ask why he might have written such an uncharacteristically toxic play.